This week on The Road to Rock, none other than legendary Wasp guitarist Douglas Blair will join us to talk about the upcoming Wasp 40th anniversary tour, getting back on stage after two and a half years of an absence for Wasp, and also his side project, Signal to Noise. It's all coming up right here on The Road to Rock. Get ready. Hi, everyone. This is Eric Martin, the lead singer for the band Mr. Big, and you are on the road to rock with Clint Schweitzer. Thank you so much, man. I, I love talking about the things that I love, Clint, and for you to allow me to do it with you. God bless you. God bless the heartland. God bless America. You are now on the road to rock. It's not just a podcast. It's an unabashed celebration of rock's living legends. And now, please welcome your host, the master of your rock and roll road trip, leading you down the highway to hell, Clint Schweitzer. And welcome to On the Road to Rock. I'm your host, Clint Schweitzer, and I have such a tremendous guest joining me this week. It's releasing a little late because I'm doing the interview a little late in the evening. So if you guys are getting this at around uh, 9 or 10 p.m. Central Time, that's because I just got done doing the interview and getting it up. So usually I do uh, shows, podcasts, airs on Friday, of course, here on The Road to Rock. And I was able to work out this interview with none other than Wasp guitarist Doug Blair. And uh, this was the time that we could uh, make this work here on a Friday night. So I thought, hey, why not make it this week's podcast, get it out as soon as possible and roll with it because this is a very special interview. And of course, Wasp, guys, is hitting the road uh, in America for the first time in a decade here th coming up this fall. Uh, the tour in America anyway starts in uh, late October in Las Vegas and there are several dates. Of course, there was a European tour that was scheduled this spring that's had to be postponed to 2023, but Wasp does have a few dates this spring uh, that will take place uh, mostly in Sweden. So we're going to talk to Doug about kind of the resurrection of Wasp in America, why now is the time to return. And I think the appetite for Wasp is huge, as evidenced by the ticket sales uh, on this tour. If you go to the uh, website, waspnation.com, you can see all the tour dates. I will be catching the show November 6th at the Tulsa Theater in Tulsa, Oklahoma. There have been dates that have already sold out. So make sure you go get your tickets now. This is going to be an event not to be missed. For a couple of the shows, uh, the ones in Texas and Oklahoma, I believe, Michael Schenker will be joining the tour along with Armored Saint, and Armored Saint will be there for the entirety of the tour. So what a bill, what an event it's going to be. Of course, those old school fans, you know, I'm only 38, so I don't remember this because I was only one years old. But in the research I've done since, I've heard tale of this infamous uh, Wasp Ma uh, Metallica Armored Saint tour that took place in 1985 with Wasp headlining these shows. Wasp is one of my all-time favorite bands, definitely in my top five, and to be able to see them for the first time since 2004, I saw them on the Neon God Tour at the Blue Note in Columbia, Missouri. So to be able to go down to Tulsa, check this out in the fall, I already am just waiting with anticipation for this, as a, a lot of Wasp fans are, to be able to see this band for the first time. I mean, they haven't been on stage, I think, since December of 2021. So we're going to talk to Doug about that. Uh, the side project, he released a single uh, from his band Signal to Noise, which is a, a power duo made up of him and Tony uh, to Toxie London from Santa Cruz, sorry. 
And um, it is absolutely just searing and emotional. Uh, this music is tremendous. And uh, the single, which is, um, it's called Generica. And it, they did that single just to raise money for mental health awareness, which is tremendous. Doug's just a great guy. Formerly of the East Coast from Connecticut, now lives overseas in Finland. I'm going to talk to him about that dynamic. Why the move? Why did it happen? And then, of course, what it's been like. He's been now with Wasp. Uh, for the last 18 years, he joined in uh, back in uh, 2004, 2005. Uh, the first album he did was called Dominator, and I absolutely love that album. Wasp has been so prolific in their post, you know, 80s and 90s output. Uh, in the 2000s alone, you think about Unholy Terror uh, back in 2000 or 2001, I think. Um, uh, El Dorado, uh, they've had some just tremendous albums, a dominator Babylon and Golgotha. Those are the three that Doug has been on with Wasp. We're going to talk about, you know, what it's like working with Blackie Lawless. Uh, you know, you hear all these tales and of course, uh, former guitarist, Chris Holmes now battling throat cancer. So there's a lot to get into with Mr. Doug Blair and we can't thank him enough for his time. We're going to go to that interview here in just a moment, of course. But we want to thank everyone for being a part of the show. As always, go to our website, roadtorockpodcast.com. That's where you can check out all the interviews, the the podcast, the articles, everything that we've done is archived there, roadtorockpodcast.com. And you can search on the Road to Rock. Uh, catch us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. It's all there, all for you. We don't have a TikTok yet. People are demanding it. If you have a request... You have something you want to talk about, just want to shoot the crap, email me, roadrockpodcast at gmail.com. So without further ado, I want to take you to this week's interview that I just conducted moments ago with my good friend, Doug Blair from Wasp. It's great to have you again, guys. It's, you are on the road to rock with Clint Schweitzer. Our special guest this week is none other than Wasp guitarist Douglas Blair, but we're going to talk about a lot more than just that. It is so great to have you on the show, what what pray tell are you doing out here in California? Because I know you live abroad. You live uh, overseas in Finland, I believe. What what are you doing in the states? What's what's going on for you right now, man? Well, I was over here because we had been planning rehearsals for a spring run that would have started on March 14th and went till the end of May. Yes, and that was up in the air and on the fence for a long time because the. Ticket sales were great when it was first announced, and it was going pretty smooth. And then the Omicron hit, and everything just went flat. And especially the countries that uh, the tour goes through, they're tending to be more the, you know, more the the European style of closing everything down, which has already happened twice since I was in Finland. They closed down. Uh, I can't remember when, but they closed everything down two different times. And that's that's just Finland. A lot of the countries did, you know, whatever they did was their style. They did it their way. And uh, this time, we were hoping that things would open up in time, and things have opened up, but not in time to get the ticket sales up and to really be certain that there wouldn't be any hangups on the borders between, you know, there's still a lot of inconsistencies between which countries require what type of testing or vaccinations or whatever and now of course we have the, the new the new bomb dropping from yes you know, from the sky so in 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 a weird way you know we were bummed out that the thing had to get postponed till next year again but in a weird way we would have been pretty much stuck you know in this right at the wrong time so it, it's funny how things work and no matter what um 
you know, not to go down that rabbit hole, but if, if this <laughs> thing doesn't get sorted out quickly, then, you know, it'll be a while before anybody's touring. I would, I would go on record to saying that. So the tour was supposed to start. We were scheduled to be in the big room at third encore, which is a great facility that we have used for years and years. We were scheduled to be in there today. As a matter of fact, I think we were supposed to start today and go for five days or so, and then have a day to get ready and then fly over and have a day to get ready over there. And then we would have been into production rehearsals in Germany, I believe, for a few days, maybe four or five days. And that would lead up to the first show on the 14th. So everything was, was, you know, written, penciled in, put it that way. It was penciled in. (laughs) That's all you can do these days, right? Pencil it in. You can't use a permanent marker. (laughs) You're all done. So yeah, we had the rehearsal scheduled for a long time at the facility. We had the other stuff all in place. And everybody was kind of waiting and watching and waiting and watching. And then they, you know, really had to make the decision to move everything a year. And I got to really hand it to the the promoters and the guys, you know, on our business team for the band that, you know, this is like a nightmare. This is a nightmare for the third time. Uh, last time we did have a fall tour for 2020 and that just got completely shelved. So that was bad enough, but to move, all of those shows one by one or in groups and, and actually plan it for next year must be like Tetris times a thousand, <laughs> I would say. And they, they did it. They were able to move all the shows before announcing that the whole thing needed to be postponed. And that, you know, and that's an unbelievable amount of work and not to be able to talk to anybody about it, not to be able to tell anybody because if one, you know, if one person says, Oh yeah, it's getting postponed and it leaks, then all the fans, everybody's wondering what's going on. So they really had to keep it all under wraps and uh, get it all organized before making the announcement. So it's been a frustrating time. And I've just, I've just been here kind of waiting. I haven't had, I haven't done any of the work. Everybody else did all the hard lifting and the hard work. And I've been out here because I thought we may be able to get into, you know, rehearsals and we have been doing some, you know, for a, preliminary hanging out and meeting and playing a little bit with the guys because I live very far away. So it's been great to be here and hang out with Achilles, the drummer and Mike, the bass player and get in a room and, and blast through some songs and stuff. And we just knew that, you know, it probably was going to get postponed, but we still just had to, you know, keep planning for the, for the best and, you know, hoping for the best and planning for the worst. So that's why I've been here. I'm flying out on Monday, which is exactly the day we would have flown out <laughs> as a band. Wow. So I'm flying out alone. Going to be a little bit lonely down at the, you know, at the airport. I'm going to be waiting for everybody to show up. Hey, where are you guys? What the hell? You're fucking late. So, <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to be down there on my own, cool. flying to Munich and then to up to Sweden. And then we will reconvene in the summer for some festivals that have thankfully been put on the calendar to, to keep us busy. Yes, that looks awesome, by the way. One of which um, you are playing with uh, Ace Freely and, and the Struts, and I'm a huge fan of the Struts. I mean, don't even get me started on Ace Freely. I just saw him open for Alice Cooper just this fall. Still tremendous. His band is awesome. And I know you're a big Kiss fan, right, growing up, so this is going to be cool. I, I believe you said you – I just. I was just going to ask you during this interview – what your first concert was, but I think you posted earlier 
that one of your first was Kiss and Rush there on the East Coast, right? Uh, what year was that? Cool. And how, yeah, that's what year was that? And what, and when, uh, what, um, that was that was that in Connecticut or Massachusetts? Do you do you remember? That was in Springfield, Massachusetts. But I lived mm-hmm. in Manchester, Connecticut. I grew up in Manchester right. around Hartford, and it's only about twenty miles up to Springfield. So we were right. in a really great place for concerts. We had the Hartford Civic Center, where I saw Van Halen and Journey and everybody, and then we had the Springfield Civic Center, which was a little bit smaller, and I got to see a lot of great shows there. Then we had the New Haven Coliseum, and I went down there and saw Van Halen open for. Black Sabbath in 1978, the same year that I got to see Kiss. So what's ironic is both both Rush and Kiss came out with their live records pretty much the same time, 1976. Uh, Kiss came out with Alive, and Rush came out with All the World's a Stage. And we had heard of Kiss because they were you know on the cover of Newsweek, and my big sister went to see them in, in 1976, and everybody knew what was going on. But Rush was a mystery, and we saw the cover of the record of all the oh. world's estate, me and my friends, we saw the cover and we said, we're buying this fucking record. So we bought it <laughs> and we got, we got hooked on rush as well. So rush was coming through and touring and I got to see them in the same place in 1978 on the um, hemispheres tour, which was absolutely amazing. They had a giant video screen that was wider than the stage and they played all kinds of great stuff while they played. And then we saw Kiss there, which was unbelievable because they had the the platforms that went up in the air. So Ace went up in the air, and Gene went up in the air, and Paul went up in the air. And we're into not a very big Coliseum, I think about 12,000 people. So it really was amazing. They brought all that in there, and we got to see it. I was 15 years old. I was 15 years old seeing Rush, and 15 year old, years old seeing Van Halen open for, for Black Sabbath in 1978 in the New Haven Coliseum. So that was a great year for seeing those three, you know, bands that really kind of molded me and a lot of our friends. You know, we had Aerosmith and, and other bands, of course, but Kiss and Rush and Van Halen and Black Sabbath kind of really, and, and they were there. We could, even as 15 year olds, we could either get a ride to the to the concert, or I think we would, we could drive at 17. But I didn't drive to those concerts. I think somebody took me. So that was cool that uh, yeah I, that I saw. Um, I'm not a big uh, I'm not I'm not up on the struts, but a lot of my friends love them and tell tell me they're great. So I'm looking forward yes. to getting to know them before we get to play with them. But the thing about Ace is not only is Ace a close and very old friend of Blackie, of course, but his drummer, Matt, I have played with him since about 1990, maybe 89 or 90. Uh, Matt was in a band that I had for a long time previous to joining Wasp called Run 21. And Matt was a drummer that kind of came along after Stet Howland, who was the one who kind of got into Wasp first with Blackie. Yep. Seth Howland was the original drummer when I played with Run 21 since I was uh, uh, Run 21 played its first show about two months after Wasp played its first show. We both had our first shows in the fall of 1982, our, our debut shows. So when me and Seth were in Wasp doing the Crimson Idol tour in the fall of 1992, Blackie was 
saying this this is the 10 year anniversary of the band and me and set were looking at each other and going yeah it's the 10 year anniversary of our band too <laughs> so, but we were in another band you know we were in we were playing together in his band so it was kind of ironic but but yeah we both started out around the same time they were in la of course and took a vastly sure. different route that we did <laughs> but we ended up playing uh you know about 1500 shows with run 21 around the east coast and a lot of my connections that kind of got me to where i'm here all started back then not only set but uh guys like nuna from extreme and matt who plays with a lot of you know has played with a lot of people now and a lot of our friends from New England ended up getting doing pretty well and getting into different bands. So it's it's amazing to look at Fate's Warning and Chris and Pelletieri and Jimmy Bell, who came in second to, to Zach Wild. And uh, then you go to Springfield and you have Stained came from Springfield. You have Tony McAlpine came from Springfield. Uh, all the Boston bands at Stream and, and those guys. So it was really fertile. It was really, really fertile. And looking back on it now, it's interesting. Because even Blackie will say to me, "Damn, there's a lot of guys from the East Coast came out and and got you know ended up being in the business one way or another." Sure. And he was even from Staten Island, but the uh, you know I never actually moved out here. I've only come out here to work with the band and rehearse and record and and visit and stuff. And this trip might be my longest trip I've ever come on my own and hanging out. And oh. because we did not end up being able to rehearse or do much, it still has been a really great time to uh, skip the whole winter, put it that way. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, no doubt about it. And, you know, you think about uh, the timing of things and, you know, for Wasp, I think it's been by my count. Now math isn't, isn't my strong point, uh, Doug, but 27 months since Wasp last took the stage, you know, with these, with the, the pending dates coming up here. And then of course we'll get into this. 40th anniversary of Wasp. It is here and it's coming to America. 10 years since you've been to America. Are there, when it comes to the band, I mean, you and, and Mike have been in this band for so long. He's been in since I think 1995, you for the last 18 years. Is there, what's the feeling right now? You're, you're, are you chomping at the bit? Is it anxiety? Is it excitement? Is it just, let's get this going? What, like, what, what are the feelings as you, you know, this tour gets postponed, you've got some dates on the books, but this America thing, this has been in the works for a while. That's what everyone's talking about. There's shows that are sold out already on this America tour. I'll be at the show in Tulsa. Can't wait to see you there. Talk about how the excitement of that and just kind of what you guys are feeling after 27 months of being off. Well, that you just touched on about 10 different emotions, and I'll try to <laughs> remember which ones to go for. But well. <laughs> just to go back, yeah. First of all, we were really lucky to have our last two shows right before this shit hits. Yeah. Our last two, our last two or three shows were down South America in early December of 2019. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times we would never play separate shows like that that late in the year. If we tour, we would usually tour until maybe a week or two before Christmas or not even that late just to give everybody time to kind of chill out and be ready for the holidays. So actually it was really uh serendipitous to end up with those southern festivals and they were cool they were not fests with uh slipknot and with behemoth behemoth and a lot of really great bands were down there with us and then we played a single show on our own in sao paulo brazil that was the very last show and that was with accept 
And what was noteworthy about that show is that is kind of Achilles' hometown, and his hometown fans were all there, and he brought his giant drum set. And that was like a big homecoming show for Achilles to get to play down in Brazil. And that was our last show. And little did we know that we wouldn't be able to play for this long. Nobody knew. So I'm sure, mm. you know, I'm, I'm not telling anything you haven't heard before that you've heard from other bands that have been right. waiting and planning tours and, and having them canceled over and over again. We had festivals in the summertime in Europe that were canceled. We had the European uh, headless, uh, headless tour was fall of 2020 and uh, that got that got canned out so I've had other smaller tours that I do on my own kind of up around Finland and Sweden those have been canned so the first time it really nails you it really depresses you really knocks you down but after a while you look at the whole sphere of things and realize you know it, it's just part of life and we've been really lucky in the past that shit like this has never really happened and now we're on the, you know, the, the tipping point of another iceberg, iceberg that really, I hope, does not start affecting or continue to affect touring in the next few years. I really hope that it, you know, that it subsides. But yeah. as far as the other things you're touching upon, uh, you know, the band has had, has had kind of ebbs and, ebbs and kind of waves and what's happened here in the States with, you know, the particular genre of metal and, and what a lot of the other bands that the, that Wasp has been kind of lumped in with and how they've handled their careers. I think that's led to sort of a ebb and sort of a low point in rock and metal in the States during the two thousands and even into the early 2010s. And it seems like there's been a nice resurgence with all the great metal cruises and, Mm -hmm. The rooms, you know, there seem to be more rooms and the bands are reuniting and they're get back, you know, they're getting out on tour. That's been a nice thing to watch happen again. The last time Wasp played in the States was 2013 at the M3 yep. Festival. And I remember Blackie saying to us in the dressing room, saying to us, take a look, good look around. Take a good look around. <laughs> it's probably going to be a while before we come back here again. We had been feeling in the last you know, few tours we tried to do in the 2010, 2011. I, I don't recall exactly what years they were, but the venues and the way the venues treated the bands and, and the dilemmas that we got stuck in the last few times that we were out, you know, that same sentiment had been expressed a few times that, you know, take a good look around. I don't know if we're going to be back here for a while because oh. things had just seized and it wasn't. It wasn't the environment that really was kind of conducive to to bringing out a good show on the road, to to bringing out a good road crew, to treating everybody well, to you know staying healthy and actually you know having a good environment out there when you're traveling long distances. Uh, the states have historically longer distances than touring in Europe. A good a good analogy of touring in Europe is like touring in New England. <laughs> and to get used to growing yeah. up in New England and being able to do one-nighters kind of at any corner you want to try to drive to, not really one-nighters, but most of your drives between cities were a few hours. And the way that the scene used to be, it supported that. You could play in each one of the cities and, and there wasn't much crossover. But the way the states are now and the way the markets are spread out, 
of course, you got to lose nights to get to the next show. You got to have, you know, a night off, and that's very expensive. And to compare that to Europe, where you can really kind of go as long as you want almost without taking a night off, you actually have to decide how many nights are we going to do this before we start endangering our health or whatever. So in Europe, the only time you really need to put in an extra day is if you're going from England down to, you know, maybe Spain, or if you're going from uh, Germany all the way down to Greece or something. If the routing is good, then you really can get away with not many uh, nights off for travel. Mm. You can take, you can have your nights off for rest and not have everybody traveling, but you're not stuck in that situation where you're driving from New Orleans to, you know, Phoenix for the next show, which you can't really do in one night or from Phoenix up right. to, you know, I don't know, Chicago or somewhere. And you got to take that night off and everybody has to, well, the drivers have to do it. They have to keep going. So I'm trying to think where I got back to. Oh, so yeah, the last, the last few runs that we did here, you know, the attitude, not only, not only in our band, but in many other bands that were trying to do it from our genre and from our kind of graduating class, if you if you say that, <laughs> you know, it was gradually smaller rooms and crappier environments and crappier situations. And and uh, luckily for the band in Europe, we have a, a great scenario over there and a, a very young following and a, a good turnover of younger fans. So there's always that to kind of focus on and that's what we ended up doing to the you know yep. chagrin of the fans here in the states but the other thing that uh came around i think and i can't speak for you know everything directly because it's not my my i'm not in the it's not my avenue of expertise the business side but sure. i think that there there had been a a dire uh lack of good agents <laughs> which would go along with the rooms being, you know, harder to deal with and stuff like that. And I think now there are better agents and we've found a very good agent. And uh, that's what has led to a great run being organized by, by them. And we're all really super looking forward to it. So it's going to be killer. Oh, absolutely. Can't wait. And you, you got, you guys are going to be out with uh, Armored Saint, which is just tremendous. You know, uh, what a, what a great band. And for a few shows, including the one I'll be at Michael Shanker, this bill is tremendous. People are anticipating this that I've talked to people that are just like already planning their whole weekend around this, like around here, you know, it's football season. Like no one, even no one cares. We, we want to get to this wasp date and that's very important. It's been it's been 18 years right before you joined. I saw Wasp Blast in 2004. So you weren't even in the band yet. You've been in the band 18 years. What's kind of this ride, this journey meant to you? Because you, you're you a working man's guitarist. You're seemingly never content. You're versatile. You play on things. You produce bands. You work with young bands. You do so much. For for you personally, a guy growing up, going to, to see bands like Kiss on the East Coast, growing up in Connecticut, what has this journey the last 18 years kind of meant for you personally as, as a musician and, and as just a rock fan, what, what's this been like for you working with Blackie for 18 years? Well, the, I'll have to go back to the first time that I was able to work with the band in 1992. And that was directly from Stet Howland 
moving out to California, leaving Run 21. He left our band, Run 21, to move here to California and work with an old friend of ours named Chris Impelitary, who is who has been billed as the world's fastest guitarist. Chris was a uh, a guy on Shrapnel Records and came from Connecticut. He grew up in New London, Connecticut area, and actually wanted to be in Run 21 as well way back in the day when I got the gig in 1982. But Chris ended up making a great career on his own and still is an amazing guitar player. And he called Stead up and said, do you want to come play in Japan? <laughs> so Stead couldn't turn that down. He moved out to California, played with Chris for a while, but then ended up hearing about uh, Blackie looking for a drummer because of uh, a dilemma with, with Frankie Benali at that particular time. I believe that Frankie had some personal dilemmas and needed to take some time off during the recording of Crimson Idol. And that's how Stett was able to get in and audition and end up playing on the record. And then he was in the band. And I remember him calling me and saying, you know, man, just, you know, be ready one day. The phone might ring. You never know. So sure enough, the phone rings. I'm teaching guitar lessons up in Springfield, Mass. And somebody comes and knocks on the door and says, uh, your wife called and, and she said Stet Howland called and they told told her that you have a plane <laughs> ticket to go to California tomorrow morning. And I'm like, oh, my God. So sure enough, they had been auditioning guitar players. And apparently of all the guitar players in L.A., they couldn't find anybody that kind of piqued their interest or even kind of, you know, got in the ballpark. So Blackie had turned to Stet and said, all right, Stet, you know everybody in this town, which he did, because he parties and plays with everybody. He's just he's he's one of those guys that everybody knows. So uh like he turned to Stet and said that to him and Stet said, Well, I know a guy, but he's in Connecticut. And Blackie said, So <laughs> get him out of here. So that's what happened yeah. even before I heard about it, they had already arranged for a plane ticket. Incredible. And I called him later. Yeah, I called him later that night, and uh, and they told me what songs to learn, and I ended up coming out and auditioning and stuff. So the beginning of this whole thing happened then, and uh, the journey really begins then. Yes. As far as with the band, because I played the whole Crimson Idol tour, and then after that, uh, Blackie had decided he wanted to kind of go solo and, and create a band called Lawless which we were going to be a part of, me, myself, and uh, Stet and, and a bass player from Connecticut named uh, Dave Sharico. But that was short-lived. Apparently, we kind of went back and waited and waited, and we didn't really hear anything. And uh, I moved on. I moved on from there and went back to working with Run21 and continuing building guitars and doing different stuff. So when I heard that if Blackie had reformed Wasp uh, with Chris Holmes, I wasn't that surprised i had hoped you know it, it could have lasted longer but it didn't and here's the thing is that the crimson idol really is still my favorite record and a lot of people's favorite record yes record yeah me the me too mm -hmm. yeah for many reasons uh, you know as far as loving rush and loving journey mm -hmm. and van Halen and and all this stuff the early watch stuff i liked it 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 kind of hit me like a uh, good quiet riot maybe or something some good rat <laughs> but it wasn't it didn't it didn't really get under my skin like 
the Crimson Idol did. When I went out to audition in 1992, I had no idea that they had a record that sounded like that. And when they gave me the first three songs to learn, one of them was The Idol, which of course has a lot of acoustic guitar. When I heard how much acoustic guitar was on there with the great misconceptions of me and with the, the Idol, of my home, yeah. and The Idol, I was like, this shit is great. Where did yes. this come from? I'm like, damn. So my first, you know, to step into that type of scenario with the band was, was really a godsend because if I had stepped in at a different time during the band's career, if I had stepped in, for example, during KFD or, uh, I don't know, a different record, I don't know if I really would have uh, latched into it, put it that way, if I would have locked into it. But to walk in and get to do the Crimson Idol record for I, I think it was 64 shows all through Europe. We played all through the states. We did freaking monsters of rock. We yep. did giant yep. festivals, and we got to play that music. And we got to play Wild Child and and Blind in Texas and and all the other good stuff that we added to the set list. But that was really kind of a I would use the word again serendipitous. Um, entry into the band it couldn't have been better i mean i was totally into 2112 by rush and yeah freaking, you know and and eddie van halen too and, and other stuff that wasn't quite as prog but to have that much to be challenged by and Stet Holland is a monster drummer and he was perfect for that gig and perfect for that tour I was able to use a double neck guitar that I had developed only about a year before that audition, which has an acoustic neck on the top and electric neck on the bottom. And I developed it because my acoustic guitar that I had been using on a stand kept on being knocked over on stage and broken because somebody <laughs> would trip on the table and it would get knocked over and I'd have a, you know, a beautiful ovation guitar in two pieces again. So finally, oh, I just made God. a double neck. And it worked. And I think it was pretty elemental in getting me the audition because I was able to play that acoustic stuff with a real acoustic guitar, whereas a lot of the other guys walking in for the audition would just plug their, you know, they just turn the amp on a clean sound, put on some chorus, put a little delay, and they'd play the clean part. And it wouldn't sound as much like Hold On In My Heart playing it on a real acoustic guitar. So at any rate, uh, the 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 point I was trying to make is that after the Crimson Idol, the records that the band ended up going back with Chris and doing Hell Dorado and KFD and and some of the other ones, those weren't really my cup of tea. And I had stayed in touch with Stet, who was still in the band. Stet stayed in the band with Chris Holmes and then with yep. uh, Daryl. Daryl came after Chris and they did uh, the Neon God records and and there's there's some great songs on those. Yep. But again, right out of the blue, I had had a really successful teaching business. I was uh, teaching like 40 kids a week at their houses and just rolling along. Right out of the blue, the phone rings again. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and it's, it's Mike Duda this time. Oh, yep. We're actually, no, let me take that back. I heard that Daryl left. 
I heard that Daryl had left the band. Somebody wrote to me and said, hey, did you hear Daryl left? And what I did is I wrote to Mike and I said, so what's going on? And that's when Mike got a hold of me and told me that Stett had also left. So Stett wasn't in the band. Daryl was gone. They had a guitar player and they said, thanks, we're all set. You know, if anything happens, we'll give you a call. And I, you know, said, yeah, you know, if anything happens, I could cover for a, a few weeks or something. It would be great. Let me know if, any, you, know, if you need me. And I kind of forgot about it. But then again, the phone rang. <laughs> oh, as always. <laughs> and their guitar player wasn't working out. So in 2006, same thing happened. I jumped in the plane, got out there for a, a short tour which ended up till this day. And the reason I want to mention it in context with the Crimson Idol is that I didn't know they were working on what became Dominator. I, I had no idea what, you know, if the direction would have changed or if it would have been anything different than Neon God. But when I heard the tracks to Dominator, when I heard Crazy and, and Heaven's Hung and Black and Take Me Up, I was like, Holy shit. It Great. to me it was it was night and day from the Neon God. And I got to go in and do leads on that whole record. And again, I hadn't even been playing lead guitar that much, and that's a different story. We'll talk about that later. Mm-hmm. But I had not been playing lead guitar with, with a band for quite a while. And here comes the call, hey, come out and cover for, you know, we don't have anybody. Can you come out and cover and do a a short U.S. run up and down the West Coast. We did that. It was fun. I think this is, I got to tell you this. We had one or two days rehearsal for that. And it didn't matter because I remembered all the songs. They were they were so deep in my blood. It would never go away. I, I could have went and done that gig with no rehearsal, except for the new songs that we may not have played back in the 90s. But anyway, the point is, is that when I heard the tracks, and Blackie said, do you want to, you know, play some leads on these? I was like, I couldn't believe how good they were. And I couldn't believe how they fit exactly what I would really imagine as the best version of the music underneath Blackie's voice, put it that way. So when I heard Heaven Tongue and I heard those other ones, I'm like, geez, this, this is really a step up. What happened? Like, what happened? And I don't know what happened, you know, whatever happened between the Neon God and Dominator, you know, I think other people noticed too, because I think since Dominator, there's been a a, a real shift and a a definite elevation in in where the band has been able to go. And that was Babylon and that was Golgotha and even Reidolize too. So I've been really, really proud to be part of those. And it was just a weird, again, a weird serendipitous kind of move out of nowhere in 2006 that you know they need me to come play a little bit so when you talk about the journey that's that's a journey (laughs) yep it's been a short stint it's been like a tease in (laughs) 1992 almost a tease and i kind of always knew maybe something would happen but i didn't think about it that much i didn't really keep tabs and then at the right time for whatever reason, really at the right time for everybody, it seems, uh, it all came together in 2006 again. 
And Mike Dupke is a really, really big part of that equation. His swing, yes. His the way he swings and the way he hits is is was totally. Um, I'm trying to think of the right word. Pertinent for what those records ended up sounding like. And he has played on all four. He's played on all four of the ones that I've played on, even though he's not touring with us anymore. Yeah, he's but great. his swing and his feel locks in just right. And Mike Duda and Mike Ducky are like a machine. They're like a perfect machine. And the way that Blackie's voice has evolved, I would say over from these last four records, my lead style is perfectly suited for that. And it's just really kind of by chance. I didn't try. I haven't been listening to their stuff throughout the, the 2000s. There, I, I can safely say I haven't even heard all of the Hell Dorado or all of Kill Fuck Die or all of the other ones. I know they're there. And it's sort of like someday I'll really discover them at my right time. But it kind of <laughs> seems like I was meant to slide in for Dominator. And here we are. Oh, and the, the tremendous albums, Dominator, Babylon, Golgotha, what a three album run. And, you we, you know, I don't want to get off too much on a tangent here, but I have to mention this because you've talked about filling in on the Crimson Idol tour. So we have to talk about, Doug, the I, in the in the seven years, eight years that I've been doing this show, I've lost control, my friend, of one interview and one interview only. And by lost control, meaning I had no... Uh, no control over the interview. It just went where it went and it became kind of a, an internet sensation. Yes, you guessed it. That was with your former bandmate there on that Crimson Idol tour, Johnny Rod. What, what does that, what, what, when you hear that name, just what, what comes to mind? Because to me, one word, it's energy. And he certainly has plenty of that to this day. And I love the guy, but my, I, I just lost control of the interview and I never got it back. <laughs> Well, As you can imagine, that right? Yeah, <laughs> it comes up. My first impression of Johnny when someone mentions his name is his eyes almost popping out of his head. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then I the love second, it. right, and close behind is just the smile, the smile and the the pat on the back. It was great touring with him. You know, I didn't really get to know him super close because everything was pretty rushed. When I got in, I got in for the Crimson Idol tour right at the very, I think, two weeks before the first show. They were they were kind of, uh, they were cramming. They were cramming for that first show, and I slid right in there, and it was a, it was a, just a roller coaster ride the whole way through. Sure. Now, what happened with Johnny at the end of the tour, personally, between him and the other guys, I had nothing to do with, and I didn't know much about, and I didn't get in between. So unfortunately I haven't seen Johnny in a long time, but my experience with him on the Crimson Idol tour was great. He always had a great energy and, and just kicked ass every night. And we were just trying to keep up with him all the time. So exactly. I'm not surprised <laughs> that he would, you know, take the interview and just, you know, well, just you guys could sit back and listen for a few hours. Well, yeah, it was a lot of that. It was tremendous. I, I actually love the guy, but uh, Doug, I want to move in kind of a different direction because, you know, you talk about, and this is all kind of clicking in and making sense now, because you talk about your history with Rush and 2112 and seeing them in 1978. Uh, that's of course the Holy Triumvirate, Rush, a power trio. You have been involved with a power duo 
here called Signal to Noise. It's uh, with uh, drummer uh, Toxie London. And uh, your single Generica was released what uh, less than a year ago, back in, I think, May. And um, it is the, the proceeds, you know, you use to, to raise awareness for mental illness, which is tremendous. That's Mental Awareness uh, Month in, in America is um, yeah. in May. So you, I mean, I, I, as someone that's not a guitar person, Describe for because we have a lot of guitar players, people that listen to the show. Describe what it is that you do in this band because uh, you play a bass guitar, a hybrid called Guitar Cross. It's an eight yeah. string, and this thing is legendary. And um, Signal to Noise is awesome. That single is great, and I think you have another one on the horizon or close. So tell us about Signal to Noise. What's going on there? All right, let me let me just try to summarize and not get too deep well, in the hole. I got to go back to Run 21. Run 21 was a power trio. It was myself, Stat Howland, and a guy named Jimmy Carter who played bass and sang, played, played bass guitar and sang. And he was a, a star in his own right. He was like our version of Blackie in a different band. We were a great power trio. Uh, we all sang lead and backup. Uh, when I joined the band, I had already brought uh, some floor mounted like pedal floor synthesizer things. So we were able to actually play some Rush when we were playing some covers. And then we ditched all the covers and only played originals. But as a trio, we still always use some synthesizers. We played them with our hands here and there, but the bass player, Jimmy, would play them with his feet, a la Getty Lee, with the, the, the MIDI floor pedals. And we were able to use those to sound more like a quartet I was able to play melodic lead guitar because there could be a, a chord backing that had a minor and a major feel to it, not just a wide open, empty thing like Van Halen, for example. We were able to tackle that territory musically and com compositionally because we could use these MIDI synthesizers to, to fill out the sound and not only for a special effect way, but for actually a musical way that allowed me to be uh, more of a melodic lead guitar player and not just, you know, be rely on licks and fast tricks and stuff just to do the flashy stuff. So where that factors into the story is one day I was listening to Filter. Now I love Filter from the '90s, and oh, yeah. one thing, they, yeah, one thing they did is they had these guitar parts where each guitarist would just be chunking on one string, like on the bottom string, yang, 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 yang. and the other guitar player would be yang, 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 doing sort of a harmony, but it had this great thick sound. And it occurred to me, I want to do that. I want to do that in my trio. I'm going to give my bass player one guitar <laughs> string on his bass, and I'm going to hook that guitar string up to a Marshall, a little Marshall, so that during one song or somewhere, we're going to be able to do that. He'll be able to press down the bass string and the guitar string at the same time. We'll have the bass note. I'll have my guitar note and he'll have his guitar note. So that initial idea, which was made for Jimmy Carter, my bass player, expanded to the point where I found a four string bass and put actually four octave strings on it. So it became an eight string bass. And I figured out a way to get those strings to go to the guitar amp by themselves. And Jimmy Carter, the bass player, had giant fingers, like a like a, an inch mm -hmm. longer than mine. 
each one of his yeah. fingers were in his lungs. So he actually could play that thing great. And he played it. And we, we developed the, the concept a little bit. And we were going to try to fit it into Run 21 music and try to use it here and there. But then I moved. I got a great job at a guitar company up near Boston. And I moved away. I moved up to Boston. And it was a tough decision to make because I had to kind of leave Run 21 as it was. Matt Franklin was in the band at that point. Me and Jimmy Carter and Matt Franklin wrote probably 30 great songs together. We we, we had kind of the best writing uh, atmosphere that the band Run 21 had throughout its whole career. So with Matt and Jimmy, we wrote a lot of stuff and even stuff that I'm still using now. So I Matt had started fronting his own band called The Flames. He was singing and playing guitar. And Jimmy lived far away. So just a long story short, Run 21 kind of came to an end and I moved up to Boston and I got there and I thought about this eight string and I was kind of bored with regular guitar because even with my double neck, yeah, you can play acoustic, you can play electric, but still, you know, guitar players have kind of covered all the territory. They did a long time ago. And, you know, a lot of the new, a lot of the guitar stuff is regurgitated. It's like as a guitarist, how do you keep, breaking new ground how do you keep moving forward somehow i looked at this thing and said fuck it i'm gonna i'm gonna play that thing so i yeah. started playing it and i started writing songs on it and i realized that a lot of the songs that i wrote on acoustic guitar could be transferred and played on the thing uh, a certain amount of run 20 music run 21 music could be adopted to it and i started playing it and i found a drummer up in boston and that was the beginning of what I had dubbed signal to noise and I've been refining the thing. It started out with four guitar strings and four bass strings. And I realized I never play the top bass string. And if I ditch the top bass string, I get another guitar string. So that, mm. that brought me to the, to the state that it's been in for quite a while. Now it has five guitar strings and three bass strings. So the bottom three strings are doubled guitar and bass string. And they are basically D A D because I usually leave it in drop D tuning. So you have two octave pairs that are D A and D. And then I have a G and a B string that are only guitar. So what that means is I can have five string guitar parts and then I can turn on either one, two or three bass strings for whatever I need for the song. And it's really fun. I, I mean, I don't know how to explain it, but playing guitar as long as I have and you kind of get bored and you think, well, gee, mm -hmm. I'm going to go buy a wah-wah pedal. Or maybe, you know, <laughs> nowadays, there's a, actually nowadays guitar players have a lot more fun because of all the new digital amplifiers and digital effects. Sure. There is a lot more to play with and there is actually a lot more room to expand in. But before that stuff came out, we were stuck with whatever normal amps you could get, whatever effects you could buy. So guitar players did kind of get stuck in a little rut where it's kind of like, well, where do we go next? What do we do? So that's why this thing is actually super fun because you you actually end up playing bass with the drummer and locking in as yep. a bassist. But you're also able to play, you know, guitar chords. We use open tunings. I can even play some lead on it because I still use the MIDI floor pedals and the MIDI synth pedals. So I actually break out a couple of leads during the show. But I'm going to tell you right now, the best part about it, the absolute best part about it, regardless of what instrument I'm playing or whatever the 
technical details and doodads and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> the best part about it is being able to work with one other musician. And that's what, uh, yeah. when I do clinics now and I talk about the power duo or whatever, it still boils down to when you're working as a musician, uh, working with one other musician is one of the best ways to write music and really create music. And a lot of the best music that ever came out has come from really good writing uh, partnerships, Elton John, and, you know, you can name them forever. You can name Eddie and Dave and Slash and Axel and Keith and Mick and John Paul, you know, uh, jo uh, Jimmy Page and Robert Plant. Wherever you go, you're finding guys that can work together, Nuno and Gary Sharon, and create great music because they can bounce ideas off each other. When I'm playing with my drummer, Toxie, here in Finland, but I've done most of the work with Signal to Noise with a guy in, in Boston named John, the real, croc, uh, the real crux of the, the matter or the real point of the matter is you have two people in the room. Whatever one person does, the other person can jump right on it. And before you know it, you've got a song. You don't have the third or fourth opinion. You don't have other cooks in the kitchen and things can happen very fast. And they can also kind of, it's like two people improvising together in a jazz uh, scenario. The shit can go to the moon mm -hmm. and back in a second. So that's, you know, regardless of the, the, the nifty instrument of invented or whatever, the best part is being able to really create songs with one other guy and have it sound like a wall. It sounds like a trio. It sounds like King's X. Sounds like Rush, sounds like that mm -hmm. one. But we're also trying to find a way to really sound like two people. Primus would be a good a good example, the way that oh, know, yeah. the drummer in Les Claypool, when they start playing something, you're just like, fuck, wow. Yeah. Or Neil Peart and, and Getty Lee, same thing. Of course, Alex is there, Alex Lyson. But Neil and Getty, they made they just made this thing, like, and it's it, it it's un copyable it's just so them so that's where uh that's where that thing ended up growing and and that's what i was doing in between uh being in wasp in 1992 and getting back in wasp in 2006 i really played this instrument from about 1998 straight up to when i got back into wasp and it was really cool to come yeah. in to do the leads for dominator because i picked up my guitar and i went man I haven't played this thing in years. So what's cool is that the licks that came out for Dominator were really just what what should have come out. They weren't a bunch of stuff I had been practicing. I hadn't been touring with other bands. I hadn't been working on my licks. I hadn't been listening to any other guitar players. It was really completely out of the blue. I would hear the song that, that those guys had been working on and just start playing. So it's kind of, Another ironic situation that, you know, is able to come back into the band with a really, really fresh approach from not even playing lead guitar with anybody for a while. I had been focusing completely on this uh, guitar cross and on developing Signal to Noise. We had recorded maybe 40 songs by then, but we hadn't really wow. been able to make way in the States. So then I go move to Europe, and that's where there's been much more opportunity for the two-piece project to to kind of uh, expand and kind of blossom a bit when wasp isn't doing anything so 
it kind of worked out for the for the better. What was the kind of in you know genesis? What was the reason that you kind of wound up moving overseas? I mean, we know that there's been some uh, several American artists that have moved elsewhere. Marty Friedman, I think, lives in Japan. My our good friend Ryan Roxy lives in Sweden. I keep saying I'm going to go visit him, but then I watched the movie Midsummer and I decided not to. Just kidding. That's a great movie though. If you haven't seen it, uh, Chris yeah. Holmes from Wasp lives, I think, in France. And of course, we just found out he has a throat cancer and we wish all the best to him. I'm a huge fan of Chris. And uh, there's, there's other people that have done it for you. What was sort of the reason? Because you have so many perspectives. Now you have the perspective of the different socioeconomic, different diverse, you know, musical styles that, that, that exist in Europe. And you have the growing up on the East coast playing with wasp. You have all these different perspectives and I, that's probably made you a more well-rounded person musician all of that so what was what led you to to do this well thanks about all that i'm, I'm gonna be a the big six cell next year so <laughs> no one's counting <laughs> well you know life is broken up into chapters and i'm really fortunate that's right to have been able to you know have several different real distinct chapters but putting that aside i want to go right back to say you know that i'm really hoping that chris Yes. Can beat this. He's a big guy. He's a strong dude. It's going to take a lot to, you know, uh, Stet also had had some uh, fight of his own and, and he, he kicked did. it. And I'm hoping, you know, these guys are really strong guys. And I, I think it's going to take much more than that to knock him down. So we're all really, you know, sending our best wishes to Chris. It, it's ironic because he went over with his wife. Sarah, right about the same time that I first started going over. And okay. he went over to Finland first. He went to Finland and stayed in Finland for a while to, to see if Finland would be a place where, you know, he could kind of get his solo band going the way that he has gotten it going. And I think that uh, he's probably come across a lot of the same um, conclusions that I have and decided and he decided to move down to france and and stay you know in that area with his wife uh but that said the the real um the impetuous for for my move was the fact that the band has been growing consistently and evenly in popularity and and kind of prestige and sort of legacy over there since I rejoined. And it's weird. We've been doing festivals over there since 2007. And we, you know, to, to first see how the band was received in Europe compared to how it was received in the States was, was wild to see how much of a drastic difference there was. Uh, to go back to Chris for a second, I'll just say that even in this upcoming tour, in 2022, there will still be people coming up to me and asking me where Chris is. <laughs> and they'll be, they'll be asking me, when, you know, when did you get in the band? What happened to Chris? There will <laughs> still be people asking me. There's nothing wrong with that. that you know, there's plenty well, of bands that I've lost touch with that I loved in the 80s or, or 90s, and I wouldn't know what uh, lineup changes they've had or whatever. So 
that's the difference between America and Europe is that, of course, America, it, Wasp had a really big heyday in America, and most of the fans, of course, connect to that. And that has to do with Chris and the, the original lineups and the early guys. In Europe, it's been a bit different, and especially because of the resurgence of metal. And not, I wouldn't say resurgence. Uh, their obsession with American rock and American metal never went away. Right. And Ryan Roxy would agree with me in saying that yeah. Stockholm is more Sunset Strip in the past 20 years than Sunset Strip is. <laughs> and has yeah. been. You know, Stockholm is still real genuine sunset strip and that's the mentality that's the people are cool the music that the bands over there make uh, is not only retro but it's also groundbreaking they're they're pushing ahead and luckily and for some whatever reason wasp has always been connected to that in the minds of the people in europe and that has to do with uh, i think the way that the band first exploded in europe uh, back in uh, you know, the, the 80s with I Want to Be Somebody, that song in particular has a completely different meaning for Europeans than Americans. And, you know, it would take an hour to explain that, but some people might understand it mm -hmm. automatically and understand what I'm talking about. It has to do with the difference in the, in the societies and, and how... Uh, kids grow up and the family unit and a lot of different aspects that the, the particular line quote unquote, I want to be somebody would connect that much uh, differently or deeper. I heard that song when I was 15 or 16 and I liked it, but it didn't, I guess I already knew I could be somebody. Maybe that's <laughs> the point I want to So, Back here in the States, we're, you know, we're idolizing Kiss and Van Halen and Def Leppard and, and Journey or whatever for their messages that they were singing about, which is, you know, for example, Van Halen partying on the beach in Southern California yes. or Journey being in love with your girl. Whatever those things were, and, you know, you can talk about Rush singing about 2112, whatever those things were, those were the things that us we were connecting with whether it's dark, dark side of the moon by pink boy getting stoned and you know and, and thinking about what those lyrics meant or whatever but in sweden or finland you ask those guys about what i want to be somebody meant to them when they were 15 and i'm amazed i sit back and i just go wow can you tell me that story again it meant yeah. Really a different thing. And, you know, now that we're watching what's going on with the situation over in Ukraine, th th that may shed a little bit of light on what, you know, what people can see in their future or in their real possibilities of their lives. You know, it's just different than here. That's all. So my point is, is that the band not only based on that, but also the strength of the last four records has been slowly building a new following. We have yeah. we have 18 year olds. We have 16 year olds, and they're not coming with their parents. Their parents are not bringing them. Of course, you go to England and in Germany. There's the the old the old crew. There's the old uh, the guys that were you know coming to see the band since the 80s, and they're in, you know they're standing there hoping that we'll play Animal or whatever. 
but in front of them and up in the front, there's, you know, there's the kids that look like they're on Sunset Strip in 1987. And even Blackie will come back and go, damn, I, I just had a flashback to the Troubadour in 1986 <laughs> with those kids in the front. And it's true. And the reason why is because the society hasn't changed so much. And I think the young kids, which I have many students, I have many guitar students, and I also coach bands over there that are all that age. And they're connecting with I Want to Be Somebody the same way that the kids did back in the 80s when it first came out. We have 14-year-old yeah. kids with past their, you know, past their waists. And, and I'm practicing in one room in the facility where I operate over there. And I listen, I stop finishing the song I'm working on. And I hear some room, some band of like 12 or 13-year-old kids. And they're playing Wild Child over in their room. <laughs> and I go, I go running through the door. I go running through the door down the hall. And I go find the door. You know, and I open up the door. I'm like, who's, who's playing Wild Child in here? And I open up the door. And it's these little kids barely taller than the cymbal stand. <laughs> and they're playing wild You're kidding. Band. Yeah. And, and I, I think they know that I'm in the band, but they're not doing it for me. They're doing it because they love the song. And then they play Cold Gin after that. And I'm like, dude, I played Cold Gin when I was 14. And I'm like, dude, you're playing it wrong. Here, play it this way. So my <laughs> point is, is that they're not discovering their parents' record collections like the young people might do in other places, they're discovering the music, however, and it's connecting with them. So that's where the journey uh, kind of took the band and through the band working in Europe a lot more. I had seen guys like, uh, what's his name in Annihilator? Jeff, uh, Jeff, the guitar Jeff. player in Annihilator. He's from Canada yeah. and he moved to England too. So, he's always been doing clinics in Europe. He's, he's always, you know, doing uh, Epiphone clinics. And I remember starting to think about doing clinics and we made it up to Finland. And I asked somebody in uh, Turku, Finland, I said, do you know anybody doing clinics around here? And, you know, you know, if any of the music stores ever have anybody doing clinics, I'd love to do clinics while we're out on tour. And the guy said to me, Yes, but I need to tell you about a program that we have here. And the guy ended up being a guy named Mark Bertenyi, who is Hungarian, actually, and had moved up to Finland. And uh, he had also ended up, turned out to, to have been the stage manager for our last three shows that we had played in Turku. So we were familiar with Mark, and everybody likes him. Uh, Mark hooked up Blackie to go to the dentist at one of the summer festivals and totally saved his, you know, totally saved the show. And Mark's one of those guys like Stet. He knows everybody and everybody loves him in town. And so he had sure. turned up being the stage manager for three shows in a row. And the last show in Turku, I, I just said, yeah, I'm thinking about doing clinics. He said, well, check out our program. And that was the beginning of it. The program is called Rock Academy Finland. It's basically yes. a, a, an academy where they have sort of a band contest to find bands to, to join every year. And they get like five or six bands to come in. They record singles for them. They make videos. They record records for some of them. And I started doing clinics with them and started coming over and, 
and you know get more involved in it. And then I realized that I would be in a much better position to share all the shit I've done over the years with these kids over there. Guitar Center never had anybody do clinics, and you know where I lived around New England, there wasn't that type of opportunity, and there just uh, it just was an open door. So that was 2013, and in 2014 I moved over. But the band still worked a real lot through, you know, all those years, all the way up to 2019. So it's not like I've been there nonstop. I haven't been there nonstop until the pandemic. Mm, yeah. That's a, <laughs> before yeah. that, we've been touring. I've been in Sweden a lot. I've been dating German women and married to a German <laughs> woman. So what? I've been awesome. Germany a lot. So our whole, you know, not only the band, but personally, I'd, I'd just been leaning towards Europe. And I think there was a point where I thought I'd really love to experience living over there one way or another. So when Mark said this and I started looking into the program and getting more involved with everybody, it just made complete sense. And, and it really felt not much different than moving, you know, say from Boston to, uh, I don't know, Nashville. It didn't seem like that big of a move. I had already moved away from Connecticut up to Boston and kind of started everything out on my own. And and it was just another, you know, another step like that. But it's been just amazing. And and to go back to Ryan, Ryan's over in Sweden. Yep. And uh, there's, there's a few other guys that have made the, the move. Uh, Michael Monroe has a guitar na player named Bob Conti. I don't think he's moved to Europe, but he's always working with Michael in Finland. And, you know, they're sprinkled around. The guitar player, Volbeat, is from New York. You know, a lot of good European bands have, have gotten American guys to come over and work with them. So I'm not the only one, but there's not too many in Finland, actually. In Finland, we had Kiko Loriero from Megadeth, married a Finnish woman, and he's kind of bouncing between L.A. and Helsinki. But uh, there's not too many Americans in Finland. There's many more over in Sweden. And I think uh, Tracy Guns uh, lives in Denmark part time, so he's kind of made the made the move over there. So I don't know. It's something that uh, it's it's interesting, and I think it gives such a unique perspective and for for your life and for things that have happened and the way it's unfolded. What a great chapter for you! And I tell you, Doug, we got to do this. We're I, I we're running short on time here. I I've kept you too long as it is, but. We got to hit our, our final four drum roll, which is uh, four quick questions to, to right. kind of end things. And you give us what comes to mind. And again, I, I just got to thank you for, for giving us the time. This has been just tremendous. I got so much more to talk about. We'll have to do a, a part two as we get closer to the, maybe the Wasp US tour this fall. So we got to, we got to, we got to make that happen, my friend. Cause it's just it, with you, it's just not an, you know, an hour isn't long enough with most people. 20, 30 minutes is too long with you. An hour isn't long enough. So consider yourself yeah, just scratching this, the surface. But thank you very much. And I hope I didn't take it, take it off too much like Johnny. No, <laughs> uh, I'm going to have to send you that uh, separately because that was what, that, that's an interview that I, that will never be forgotten. Um, you, uh, let's, oh, let's, uh, I've, had many, I've had many conversations with Johnny like that. It's great. And you're like, wait, what did we, did we get anything? I don't know how like anything, whatever, like you could either finish an entire record in one day or get nothing done and not know why you even 
did you know we're around you know yeah that's just how it is with johnny and i love it he's he's great and uh, i think he's doing some stuff with king cobra now he looks great he lost like 70 pounds he looks great so i I know he's got more hair than me i'm 38 he's got more hair than i do he still looks great um so for you doug i just gotta tell you a quick johnny rod anecdote when i was on the crimson idol tour when we were doing soundcheck on the crimson idol tour many times blackie wouldn't join us and he didn't need to because Johnny's voice was almost identical to Blackie's and Johnny would be able to test the lead vocal microphone and we'd be able to do all the normal sound check stuff and Blackie wouldn't have to always join us if he didn't feel like it but what was cool is that with Johnny singing we would do hold on to my heart we would do a bunch of like obscure stuff that we didn't get to play with the band just to Johnny would sing it and I would sing back up with him and Stet would sing a little bit. And it was really killer. We were a cool power trio. <laughs> that is awesome. And I love his voice actually. So it's underrated. He did an acoustic, uh, so- a couple acoustic songs with uh, Blackie around 92, around the Crimson Idol on MTV that were awesome. Yeah. I think they did Hold On To My Heart and The Idol. And it's like, man, he's just got a great voice and he's uh, he's doing some new music. He's doing some stuff and I'm, I'm glad to see it. That's a, that's a cool story. Um, okay, Doug, for Final Four drum roll, we're going to hit you with this. Four quick questions and you give us whatever comes to mind. Um, for question one, you know, we talked about your yeah, some of your first concerts and growing up, but what was what was the first album that you remember uh, buying with your own money or, or that you stole either one? <laughs> I'm going to say, uh, is it unleashed in the East by Judas priest unleashed in the East, the 1980. Yeah. That was that your first be, one that you bought. Uh, possibly. I think I got all the world to stage, maybe 77. So yeah, so, yeah. we got to, we got to go back to the first record. I'm going to say Peter Frampton. Frampton okay. comes alone. Or Leonard Skinner, the Leonard Skinner live album, or the Thin Lizzy live album. Now that I really think about it, those might have been some of the first records I ever bought. So the, the Judas Priest would have come later. You're right. Yeah, yeah. That's the, the any of those will will definitely do. Okay, so I'm cheating here, Doug, because this is not necessarily a final four drum roll quick hitting type question, but you, you make it as quick as you can or, or that you want or whatever, but I guess, um, to try, okay. Try to try to make it a quick one. You're, you're putting together a set for 40, the 40th year, you know, 40th anniversary of wasp. Haven't been to America since 2013. Blackie has alluded that this, this set's going to be pretty long at what, um, or, are you work? What what kind of a set are you working on? The uh, maybe give us just what you can. Length. He alluded you're working on some uh, some deep cuts. I mean, what what? I guess I'll cut it short. What can you give us on the set coming up for 40th anniversary? What can you give us? It, it, it's in the the pre 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 production mode. It's in the research okay. mode. It's in the A and R mode. It's in the R and D. It's in the R and D department. It's in the R and D department. Uh, you know, the pieces are being molded on the 3D printers just for <laughs> prototyping. We're prototyping. No, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, what you know, what the what the kind of oddball extents it could go to. There's a rule that the band kind of sticks with, and and that is every song needs to 
hold up to the other songs. And the only way you can really tell is to play them in full production mode. So we're going to work up a lot of different songs in rehearsal. We're going to see how they feel in, in kind of low-end rehearsal, what we call like garage rehearsal. Just kind of see if they feel good without microphones, without PA systems, without, uh, you know, a lot of extra stuff. And if they do and they continue to, then they come in to the big rehearsal room and we see how they feel loud and we see how they feel compared to all the ones we've been playing along the way. Uh, I doubt there's going to be any glaring omissions of the, the mainstays of the kind of the, you know, the, you know, the cornerstone. The, cl the classic, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, the classic. But but there's going to be time and there's going to be a lot of room for trying to dig to some really good mm. obscure ones that haven't been played and figure out a way to play them and make them work. There's probably going to be some medleys being put together so that you can kind of squeeze in a little bit more buck, you know, more for the bucks yes. so that there's not, you know, everything isn't stretched so there's a lot of great material that that's being you know talked about and considered, and I think it's going to end up being a really really fun set to to undertake uh, because the band hasn't played you know in the states in so long. We we anticipate there's going to be people attending more than one show in a row, mm -hmm. so we're going to work hard to try yeah. to have a you know to have a, a, a kind of a shifting set kind of a, a set that drifts a little bit and moves a little bit so it's not exactly the same every single night when people are coming and seeing one show after another they're not just you know it's not a programmed you know thing just blah blah we, we have we're going to try to have a few oddballs that can be thrown in taken out and a few surprises here and there and it's going to be really a great uh environment to to go with and you know losing these shows are kind of a double-edged sword because it does give more time to focus on the u.s run we do have a, a, a few festivals we've announced in sweden sure. there may be more and those will be a, a very good, good way to keep our kind of toes in the water and not to get too stale to get out and and do some quick blast out sets over the summer and really then be able to look at okay what songs could work in this environment that we haven't played in a long time or haven't been played at all. So, so that's where it stands and it's going to be great because the, you know, the ticket sales are good. The, the uh, anticipation is high. The reactions are really good. Uh, you know, I'm still going to be called Chris a few times, but that's okay. I love it. Take it as a compliment. I think Tommy Thayer still gets called Ace Frehley uh, night after night mm -hmm. and has for 20 years. So it's uh, take it as a compliment. Don't worry. The 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 hardcore is people that know. They know. All know. I'll be there. All know. That's that's what matters, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, that's that's great info, by the way. That was way more than than I was uh, anticipating. I thought you might uh, leave me hanging there. That was great. Uh, I appreciate that. Very much looking forward to that. Um. So uh, obviously, living in Europe, you kind of. We were all locked down at, at a certain point in time. Is there is there a show? Are, are you a television guy? Is there like a show or shows that you found on streaming on Netflix that you maybe wouldn't have watched, but you had all this time and you discovered something new or anything like that? Any show or shows streaming that you found during kind of lockdown? Anything's come to mind? 
Uh, well, I got hooked on Hana since I've been back here in the States, but when I've been in Europe, I actually took the other direction and uh, went and finished a bunch of guitars that I hadn't finished before and recorded a lot of uh, leads and kind of dug a little bit deeper into playing. Uh, Finland was locked down, but we actually had summer festivals both last summer and the summer before. The only difference is that international bands could not come because of the restrictions on the travel. Last summer, actually, Europe came from Sweden, but that was the only band that came over from abroad. But because the COVID situation in Finland never really reached a level of the kind of numbers that most other places had, they were actually able to have pretty large uh, open air festivals, both the summer of 2020 and the summer of 2021. And Signal to Noise got to play a couple in the summer of 2020. And then Wasp was scheduled to play one last summer. It didn't happen. But there still were a lot of, uh, there was a lot of uh, uh, festival action. So to answer your question, we were locked down, but there still was a real lot going on compared to other countries. And I was lucky to be there for that. So uh, I didn't, I didn't end up, kind of turning my attention towards the TV, thankfully. I kind of tried to read the exit and <laughs> really good. get I built a bunch of double necks in the 90s that were mothballed and actually found quite a few players abroad that started to become interested in buying them. So I actually was able to dig them out, shine them up, put them all back together and sell them. And now I have three or four players in Europe that actually have them, which is which was a surprising change because I, for the longest time, I was the only guy that had these acoustic electric double necks and I always have played them with Wasp and Slash is the only other guy that really has those guitars. And he had Guild build them for him back in the nineties, back in the, uh, uh, what were those two records? Uh, I can't use your illusion. Yeah. In the use yeah. illusion era, he had those guitars built for him so he could play those songs. He, he uses them with uh, the conspirators. He uses, especially that song, Anastasia. He uses the double neck like perfectly. He, he plays an acoustic lead on it and then switches to electric. So he's the only guy that, the only other guy I've seen that really have been playing those things. And, and I thought, yeah, nobody's ever going to buy my guitars except for me. But thankfully, I found some cool players that are really hopefully going to take them somewhere else and really do something really cool with them that, that I wouldn't have thought of. So that's what I did during the during the lockdown. We had a lot of our young bands in our rock academy. They did a lot of festivals, and I've been working with them really hard. They've been recording a lot, and I mix sound for them when they play live shows. So we were actually kept quite busy despite most of the indoor stuff being locked sure. down. There's a lot of streaming, a lot of streaming shows going on. Signal to do it. Well, Signal to Noise did like four shows and a lot of the other bands were, were doing streaming stuff so uh, it was actually a, an interesting change in direction but it, it gave everybody it kind of lit a fire under everyone's ass of saying you know are you going to sit around and not get anything done or are you going to try to take advantage of this and get your you know get stuff done and blackie wrote a book a lot of other people wrote books and you know there's been a lot of great records made during this this shutdown so it's uh but yeah. everybody's kind of done their own thing. Last question, and I got to tie this together. This is kind of a selfish question. 
Doug, because I have to admit, I'm a, I'm a huge Kiss fan. I am a huge 80s Kiss fan, so that's kind of where I'm going to go with this, kind of go off culture a little bit, because I just saw uh, in Vegas in January Bruce Kulick and Eric Singer at Counts Vamped a night of revenge era and 80s Kiss classics. It was just memorable as all hell. And I got to ask you, because Bruce Kulick, I believe, also contributed to the Dreams in the Witch House project, the rock opera based on the 1933 H.P. Lovecraft horror short story. What Do you have a favorite 80s Kiss album or song, or are you just all died in the wool, makeup era, Ace and Peter? What can you give us on 80s Kiss or up to Revenge? I have to say that I'm I'm a 70s Kiss guy because okay. by the time you move into the 80s, Fair it, was enough. Eddie Van it was George Lynch, Eddie Van Halen, Warren D. Martini. Those guys just grabbed my balls and never let go. And so Fair I love Kiss on mass stuff, and I and I really I think Bruce is one of the best players out there. And of course Bob, Bob played all the best you know stuff on the Crimson Idol. So those two have contributed so much to the to the genre. It's unbelievable. So getting the whole other side of the story was running into a guy named Chris Laney, who had played with uh, with uh, Randy Piper in a band called Animal, uh, running into yep. Chris Laney over in Stockholm and asking him to keep an eye open for any cool projects, quote, unquote, and having him come to one of our WASP shows and say, I found a cool project for you to get involved with. And that was the Dreams and Witch House thing, which is actually based here in LA, but they've used so many Swedish and international musicians on the thing, including Mickey D and, and a bunch of different players from over in Sweden. That's where I was able to kind of meet Bruce and get to play on some of the songs that he already played on. But also I was able to get him to play acoustic guitar in one of my own solo songs, which was a Christmas song. So it's been really great to, to oh. meet Bruce. He's such a cool dude. He's such a great player. And it's been great to kind of rub el elbows with him a little bit with this project. And um, I, I really hope to see him in Grand Funk Railroad. It would be yes. great to get a show like you did. So, yeah, the answer oh. the question, I mean, Ace, that stuff just hit us when I was like 15 or 16. So it's really, unre it's irreplaceable. The uh, the Unmasked stuff, I think, had really great written songs, really wonderfully written songs. And I just need to go on one tangent for a second. I auditioned for Doro Pesh in 1990 and came in second place. I came, I came in second place to some guy wow. who ended up being in the band for about a month, get kicked out. But here's the kicker. The record that I auditioned for that Dora was pushing was the one she wrote with Gene Simmons. And all yes. those songs were awesome. They were great songs. And that was right about the same time that Gene was writing that kind of stuff with Paul and everybody. So it's just, it was a great era for Kiss. It was definitely different than the early stuff. But it really was a great era. If I ended up getting the Doro gig instead of Wasp, that would have been kind of weird. I auditioned <laughs> with the bass player. The bass player named Nick Douglas. He's still in the band. Me and Nick stood in line next to each other at the audition in 1990 at SAR Studios in New York City. Me and Nick just happened to be standing next to each other. 
and we ended up auditioning together. He played bass, I played guitar. The drummer for Steve Stevens, who had alerted me to the audition, he played drums. And uh, me and Nick ended up staying that whole day and playing with a bunch of other drummers and a bunch of other keyboard players. And then I got a call back with Nick about two weeks later down to New York. And it was me against one other guy. And they chose the other guy because his hair was down wow. to his waist. <laughs> and he looked like an Amazon. She wanted a band of American model looking guys. And I had spiky George Lynch hair. And she's like, nah, he doesn't look right. <laughs> oh, my God. But I bet you look better than all of them now, Doug. You are the man. You are on the, still on the right side of 60, like you mentioned. And things are... Things are great, man. I'm I'm so glad you're able to come over to the, to the states and enjoy some, hopefully some good weather in in LA. It's like 70 degrees here in Missouri, man. So you know we're we're doing okay. It has been a true pleasure. I have kept you way too long, but this has been so fun. So I'm just selfishly going to take this and run with it because I've had so much fun. Thank you so much, sir. Enjoy the, the last bit of your trip here. Thank you Absolutely. very very much, and uh, hope to speak with you again soon and meet you when we come to play there. I, I got you in St. Louis and Tulsa, right around me here in Kansas City. I'll see you see you here in November. Can't wait to do it, guys. Again, want to make sure that uh, everybody, if they want, if uh, our listeners want to be able to keep in touch and with you, you have your official Facebook page, uh, which is like Douglas Blair Official, I believe, is the name of it. And what um, what is the web? The, it, Blair. Yes. And then Facebook, so uh, and then I have a site for signal to noise, which is just s2nusa.com. Yes. That was not so updated, but it, it it always gets it always takes all different forms. <laughs> yes, and you can get uh, you can get to the to the right information. I think that's how I got a hold of you, actually. So, uh, thank you so much, Doug. This is just a pleasure. You're the best. Uh, safe travels, and uh, you know, stay safe, of course. Over. Over in Europe, yeah, I just, um, of course, as we mentioned, pray for for all this to just sort of come to some sort of peaceful end. That's all we can ever hope for when something like this happens. So thank you so much, my friend, and take her easy, okay? Thank you very much, sir. I just wanted to say hello to all the fans. And the thing about the, the dilemma in Europe at this point is both the Russian and the Ukrainian uh, soldiers these are kids that come see us play when we play our concerts there. So it especially is kind of, you know, really gets under our skin that, that this mm. is happening. When we play in Moscow, those are some of the best concerts we ever play. They're animals. And St. Petersburg and all through Russia, we have a great time and a great rabid fan base. These are 18-year-old to, you know, 25-year-old guys that make up the fan yeah. base, in, in, especially in, in uh, Russia. And Ukraine, the same thing just a, a super devoted fan base of animals that love the music. And it's really sad to know that these are the same guys that are out there getting hurt and, and having to do this mm. shit for political reasons. So I just want to say that, you know, we really hope for the best in that situation. Really hope for the best for Chris Holmes, our compadre, mm. and thanks to all the fans for being patient with the scenario and all the you know cancellations and postponements can't wait to get out there and get on stage for you so well said my friend thank you so much take her easy stay safe man we'll talk soon take care thank you you bet thanks